Welcome to another episode of Be Now. It's the show where nothing needs to happen because the present moment is enough. My name is Arya and today I'm sitting down with Barclay Bram. Hey. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to uh, have this chat with you um, just to kind of set up the conversation. Uh, yeah, just kind of introduce yourself. And, yeah. yeah, sure. Um, I'm Barclay Bram. I'm a DPhil candidate at Oxford University's School of Overseas and Global Area Studies. Uh, I'm an anthropologist in that department. It's a, like an interdisciplinary school. And I've been in Chengdu for a year now doing fieldwork into mental health and mental health awareness. Mm-hmm. And I'm about to move to Shanghai to take a fellowship at Fudan. And I'll be there for a, a year to continue this project. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I'll go back to Oxford and write up for like six months. Okay. So hoping for June 2021 mm-hmm. hand in, which may get delayed, but right. let's see if life intervenes or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been a journey. Yeah, it has. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I didn't intend to do a PhD, but I went to do a master's and then I got offered to stay and I couldn't really turn it down because I didn't have a job. So <laughs> it was that, it was that or, or entering the brutal job market. So I thought... I would, uh, yeah, and also it's been really beautiful. The way I like to think of it is kind of like this big four-year, or probably going to be five-year, like holiday for my mind. Mm. I don't know. It's a very like unique position to be able to think about one thing for like a long period of time like this, and to be able to have like a big project. It's really beautiful. Mm. I would love to find ways after because I don't know if I want to continue in academia, but it'd be nice to find ways to live like project to project and have like these big, very like loose, like tangential goals that you kind of head towards mm. in a vague direction. Mm. I mean, <laughs> keep it general, yeah, keep yeah. it general, but that, that's the thing. I think it's quite unique. The program that I'm in, unlike an American PhD where it's very like American PhDs are very instrumentalized and very strict. There's like quite, clear deadlines and goals the whole way through and you also have a lot of set courses teaching requirement and you're meant to assist your professors and the workload is really intense so most mm. of them are basically just very underpaid mm. professors essentially they're already working in academia but we're given like i mean my first meeting with my supervisor she like handed me like two lists of books that she thought would might be vaguely useful and then she was like, all right, well, it's going to take you about three months to like get through that. So see you in three months. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then she gave me a list of courses I could look into. And I went and I would sit in the back and listen to them. So is that how you got inspired into mental health in China? Or how did you get into that? Yeah, so uh, that came about because uh, basically of combining two interests. So I'm interested in mental health and I speak Mandarin and I'd worked. I had gone to Fudan before for a year and then I'd stayed and spent two years like writing features for Vice China. And so I spoke Mandarin and I thought it'd be interesting to combine those two things. Also, from an academic perspective, <coughs> number one, it's like really understudied. And number two, it is in this really interesting moment. I think what's unique about China academically is because you have reform and opening you have a clear moment at which concepts of psychology and concepts of like therapeutic care Mm. really entered the society 
in a way that you don't see mm. in the West because they're much more gradual and diffuse. The mm. ideas have been embedded into society in so long. In many senses, we have like a therapeutic culture right. that exists in the West right. and we have a very medicalized discourse around sadness and around depression and it's very like, it is extremely biomedical, our understanding of trauma. And these ideas are very cemented. But in China, you kind of see how these ideas have entered in a, in a more like stark pre-reform, post-reform mm -hmm. kind of way. And it's interesting then how they map on to the ideas that existed before. Mm. And so, there are some parallels you see. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm. And there are, there are continuing discourses that, that, that go between the two. And also it's really interesting because, you know, a lot of people in anthropology like to make the point that, you know, originally anthropologists went to study very disparate cultures from their own, but today we live in a very globalized world. So it's extremely, it's complex even to talk about cultures mm. as being distinct. And so you see this very clearly where, mm. for example, like Jungian psychology was very heavily influenced by Taoism. But now you have people who study Jungian psychology in China. So is this a Western idea that is entering China? Or is it actually an idea that is coming that is, full that is coming full circle? Wow. And there are many of these kind of things that, that you see, right? So, mm -hmm. for example, like a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. If you look at John Kabat-Zinn, who's the guy who sort of secularized many of the ideas of mindfulness and sort of presented them and really spread them to a wider audience, he is a, he's a very, like well-trained Zen Buddhist and so he has this very Eastern training but then he secu secularized it showed the scientific you know showed the scientific basis of mindfulness and of meditation but it is coming from the, his personal journey has been through this Eastern tradition he then said oh you can decouple the two but he has got this Eastern underlying so mindfulness even when it claims to be very universal and to an extent it is but it is also based on this continued like tradition from Taoism and from Buddhism mm. and so it's really interesting when you see full circle on WeChat for example there's this big public account called Know Yourself right. which is one of the biggest mental health players in China and Know Yourself has a mindfulness app which is very much like Headspace that you can pay for but it's very much grounded in the kind of mindfulness that Kabat-Zinn was talking about. But again, Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness is rooted in doubt. So mm -hmm. you, you see this constant flow of ideas. It's not clear. It's never a clear case of like West to East or East to West. There's always a dialectic. There's always a flow. Right, right. And especially with something as complex and as like unfathomable as the mind and what constitutes a healthy mind, this is always going to be in, in debate and it's always going to be in flux. Mm. What is your feeling on that? What yeah. is that? Well, yeah, what shapes a healthy... Cause that, what, what does yeah. a healthy brain look like? Yeah, good question. So I think the first question is when we talk about mental health and I think one of the most complex questions when we talk about mental health is locating the mind. Like, mm. philosophically, this mm. is not a particularly well-defined question mm. so to what extent is consciousness and the mind embodied or to what extent does it exist in the brain so traditional western philosophy has had the mind-body separation you have that from Descartes mm. but 
in and in the east you've had with in china with traditional chinese medicine you have a much more holistic idea of the mind body as as a full system that's in dialect that's in relationship that's one influences the other your emotional your emotions will impact on your body right. and so many of your diseases are simply a representation of an excess of anger of some kind of sorrow or something representing itself in the body right so i recommended you that book the body keeps score mm. so that also makes a point that trauma represented uh, represents itself in the body right you know there are many many cases you know people who have like lower back pain sometimes lower back pain can also be cured by going to therapy actually you know and sometimes people find like they take ayahuasca or they take like a hallucinogenic drug and actually somatic issues like stomach cramps which they've had for years which might be chronic condition that no one has been able to treat suddenly mm. find that they are cured mm-hmm. and so it can be the mind representing itself in the body but then the flip side to that is if we were to lose our arm in an accident we wouldn't then say we're now 10% more mentally deficient mm-hmm. right and people who have head injuries go to therapy and imagine their arm yeah, growing <laughs> exactly yeah we wouldn't be able to mentally make the arm grow back and people who have head injuries it's very clear that if you get hit in a certain part of your head you might be intensely prone to anger or you might lose your your ability for compassion or you might lose completely your ability to recognize faces like face blindness is quite common for people who have strokes so there are some people in the most extreme case they cannot recognize themselves in a mirror right and so we do know that it's got to be largely related to the brain but we have no real understanding of where exactly in the brain and what exactly it is and how diffuse the embodied sense of consciousness is mm. we can't say and we don't have an answer for that so it's incredibly difficult for a scientist to say to you oh well mental health is this and this is what you should be doing this is why i think any overly prescriptive cure as it were anything that is overly prescriptive in this space that people tell you this is what's going to give right, you right. perfect mental health mm. is almost certainly founded on science that in 100 years or 200 years we will look back on and be like mm. oh my god mm. you know in the same way that we look back and think like i can't believe they used to leech like the kings of england when they had a flu right, right. right? Yeah. you know i think many of like ssris and you know some of the like lithium some of these interventions which do have which can work in the short term which can work for some people i don't think that they are perfect cures for everyone in all contexts mm. and just the same way as i also don't think mindfulness meditation is the perfect cure in all contexts mm. but for many people in most contexts 100% but it's when it becomes overly prescriptive that right. that you have the problem there are people for whom a course of mindfulness meditation would be absolutely the right thing for them to do and there are other people for whom you know doing a vipassana retreat might actually send them into like psychosis yeah. which is actually not uncommon there are some cases yeah yeah and so it's you know for me i find in all of this it's about actually you know which case is, by case case by case mm. and also the mindful concept of like 
not holding on to anything too tightly, right? right? Which is the same for your mental health, which is an understanding and a compassion that there's going to be times when you're mentally unhealthy and there are going to be times when you are mentally healthier and that's okay. And therefore what in those contexts works for you Mm. and there's nothing wrong with trying out loads of methods and finding whatever works for you. And it's not about saying like, this is correct or this is this is incorrect. Mm. So for me, for example, sport is like incredibly important. So I try and do like an hour of something a day. And I'm pretty pretty good about it. Like, you know, every so often I'm, I'll skip a day, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. And, and over time I've built a life where I find that hour a day and I do different things. And like mm. when I'm in different cities, I do different things. I, I love swimming. So when I'm back in London, I live near an outdoor swimming pool that's heated year round. So horrible for the environment, but amazing for me because <laughs> like, you can go in the middle of winter and it's like really fun. You like stand on the inside and then you like open the door. It's like freezing. You run and you like dive into the water and then, yeah, it's nothing I like more than that. But in China, I maybe swim once a week. In London, I'll swim like every day. But here I do yoga, so the yoga studio under my under my apartment. So I go do that. So you, you actively prioritize your self care, basically. Oh yeah, I'll like I'll. That's the one thing that I will guarantee a day. There are days when I don't write. There are days when I don't read. There are days when I don't cook, which are all things that I really really love and are very important to me. But there's very little that's gonna stop me doing my like one hour a day because I think if it's one hour a day. I can find one hour a day, no matter how tired or whatever. And I almost always feel much, much better. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are days when I'm just too tired to write a sentence. It's mm-hmm. going to be garbage. Like, you know? So, so, so you do a lot of things and, and a lot of cool things. Sounds like you're a super, <laughs> like, a curious person. Yeah. You're, like, traveling the world and figuring things out. Uh, I want to ask you, so what's the last thing you celebrated? The last thing I celebrated, oh, Singles Day. <laughs> but did I celebrate it? Uh, the last celebration I was a part of was Singles Day, um, which was this giant celebration of commerce put on by Alibaba, where they sold $38 billion worth of product in a single day. And I basically went to write a story about it for Wired magazine. And that was technologically one of the most impressive things I've ever seen because on many levels, right? At one point they they said they were receiving 544,000 orders a second, right? So just think of the computational power a second, right? And all the money and all the systems and like it's very impressive, the system that they've built, right? Probably the most efficient e-commerce platform Mm. ever in history way more efficient than Amazon's, way more. All of these things are true, but it was also just this very bizarre thing because the way it was set up was we were on the Alibaba campus and we were given like, there was a media center and then we'd basically be camped there, keep our laptops there, keep our, I, in my case, I had a camera as well. So camera, laptop, and like recorders, everything in the media center. And then we would basically go from the media center to various things that the Alibaba team was showing us or to interviews. So like I interviewed like the head of C- the CEO of Nestle and the CEO of L'Oreal and, and these kind of people about what they were doing for Singles Day. Mm. And so you'd leave for those, but 
every time you went you had a monitor because you know they don't want you to steal an algorithm or, or mm -hmm. something so you're always minded and then you're always coming back to this giant auditorium with this giant number that's just ticking up ticking up oh. ticking up and it was just like wow is that money and it was how did you so, feel in that moment yeah yeah existential drift <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it was very, like, this incredibly complex range of emotions where, yeah, on one level, technology's great, on another level, surely, aren't we done with this, like, mm. surely the world doesn't need more shit, mm. like, how are we going to get past this mentality that growth is the inevitable, the only good, right, and Economic I think, economic growth, yeah, and I think that, this is a problem that Alibaba, and it, it's, it's a tricky thing to be anti-economic growth because mm -hmm. you're essentially saying, well, we've got to this level, thank you, and then pulling the drawbridge up. Mm -hmm. And I don't, want, I don't want to do that for anyone, right? Where's the balance, maybe? So how do you balance it, right? How do you ensure that places that have grown enough don't keep, don't keep growing at the rate that they have, right? Like, you know, I'm thinking Silicon Valley. <laughs> but, you know... Or how do you redistribute the wealth that is created adequately, right? Like, I watched $38 billion US, like, land in Alibaba's lap, right? And now there are many things that Alibaba will do with that money that will materially improve many people's lives. You know, Alibaba has created Taobao villages. There's like 5,000 Taobao villages in China. And a Taobao village is a village where 10% of the households are engaged in e-commerce mm. and the village earns every year over 1.4 million US dollars. So these are villages that before were not connected to the world and because of Taobao, you know, they sell cherries or they sell whatever and now, you know, the income and the whole prosperity of that town is completely changed by the existence of Alibaba and Taobao. It's a beautiful thing, mm. right? Like, in that sense, it's amazing. Mm. But when you zoom out, right, and you look just at this bigger picture and you're mm. seeing this number ticking up, it was disquieting. And it's also, I think, what I say in the article is it was this interesting thing where you had this flat world presented and you had all of these products flowing out from China and all these products flowing into China. And it kept showing this map and then there's the numbers. And then suddenly they'd like do a zoom in and it would be like, boom look dates from saudi arabia are being sold to a girl in beijing and like boom look this product is you know and it was just very you know very interesting everyone's connected graphic. everyone exactly uh -huh. it was the idea this the philosophical idea there was a world slowly coming together connected by commerce and how beautiful this was mm. but the reality is when this stat i heard the other day so we celebrated this week the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And at the time of the Berlin Wall, there were 15 walls separating nations in the entire world. Mm. And today, in 2019, there are 77. Whoa. And America wants to build a new the one. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, um, it's, a, it's a stark reminder that actually... Mm all of this surface level connection that would have been created through technology and all this commercial connection is actually coming at a time when the world is fragmenting more than ever. And so creating real interpersonal compassion and bounds 
is extremely difficult and I don't have an answer for it. And mm-hmm. I don't know how Alibaba would do that, but it would have been nice mm-hmm. if you saw that instead of just a number of mm-hmm. money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just felt like this idea of a world connected by commerce, while it's a connection of a sort, it felt like this is not a tie that binds us. Mm. It's a tie, but it's not binding. You know, it's mm. transactional. Mm. It creates right. a transactional world. Right. But are we actually creating empathy and building any, are we increasing the amount of love in the world or are we just treating mm. areas as regions where products come from? You know, so I wonder. And I don't have an answer for it. And it's, it is very difficult, right? Because I, I, I simultaneously am so impressed by Taba villages and by right. all of this, you know, all, all of the growth, you know, the growth that has happened in this, in this country. You know, it's mm. amazing when you walk around China and you see these cities and you see the uh, material abundance that has been created in 40 years. It's, it's beautiful. It is really striking and very special so this speaks to one of the like emerging topics around mindfulness which is uh you know mindfulness is a lot about just kind of being aware of yourself um but like the thing that's kind of coming up more into attention deserves more attention is mindfulness in like in a social setting like in empathy and with our relationships Mm. yeah and that i think becomes the next question right which is how at what point is enough Right. At what point do you say we don't need the next airport? Mm. We don't need the next. And that's an incredibly difficult thing because the wealth that has been created and the wealth that exists in the world is not equally distributed. Mm. And so mm. the, the question becomes, at what point do you say in a zero, in a zero growth world, right? You have two visions. Largely, you have two visions. Of zero quality. growth. Yeah, if, if the world is, if I say if the world is going to stop growing, right? Economic. We need to massively redistribute mm. wealth in that kind of a world, right? Mm. So, you, the, the ways that you do that, well, it's very, very difficult, right? And there's no political motive anywhere to do that. And you can see, even in America, where you have, like, you have um, Bernie Sanders and you have Elizabeth Warren who want these wealth taxes, but you see people on Twitter like chewing out billionaires, uh, sorry, defending billionaires and saying like, we need them to create innovation. But you know, there's this really good stat, which is I think a million, a million seconds is, a million seconds is like four weeks in time, but a billion seconds is 31 years mm-hmm. because it's the cumulative right so when you think in those kind of terms a billion dollars no one needs a billion no one person needs a billion dollars right. right and so yeah it needs to be distributed <laughs> you need to we need some kind of big redistribution in the world or at least fairness if you want to move the world away from growth then you have to have growth. a way yeah if growth is no longer I guess how we define growth is something that exactly is, how we define growth and how we you know, we need progress because the world is not equal and because there are still so many people in poverty. But how do you ensure that the progress that comes doesn't come at the expense of the environment and of our sanity and of just 
replicating all of the problems that exist how do you create more mindful growth Mm. in the sense of yeah in the sense of like actual really solid urban planning Mm. so one thing that frustrates me mentally in china is these unbelievably beautiful incredible vibrant cities that were built since the 1980s and why did they build them with like ring roads why didn't they try and build incredibly compact super high cities you know like they had the choice of building like hong kong or atlanta and in every case they picked atlanta Mm. you know so that's why you have these huge traffic problems pollution issues you know the planning that went into these cities it happened so fast that it wasn't thought about in a way of maximizing sustainability Mm. and maximizing like longevity and maximizing transport and all of these things it was about maximizing growth Mm. so how can you create prosperity without just pure growth and all the externalities so you look at india which is probably the next massive booming economy and you see that now delhi and i think now three other cities in india have higher pollution rates than beijing in 2014 so not even beijing today where they have had a massive like drop in the pollution level but you have this huge pollution coming out of india now Mm. and india has however many However, many probably dozens of cities that are over a million people that will equally become as polluted as Chinese cities have been Mm. in the past two decades how do you stop that but still let those people get enough material wealth and enough material capabilities that they can have opportunities and so they can self-fulfill right what is sufficient yeah so what is sufficient for human flourishing Mm. without all of the negative externalities in the world. Well, you opened up a can of worms. <laughs> so there, there you go. <laughs> um, so for the interest of time, uh, any, um, I mean, there's a ton of questions I want to get more into, but uh, yeah, any, any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, if that was, yeah, that might be, <laughs> is that too much? I, I just can't tell you like what it felt like to sit under that giant screen with all those decimal places <laughs> and all that money. Yeah, it, obviously ignited in me a lot of thoughts mm-hmm. um but yeah no just like hold compassion and love for people we're all unfinished we're all working it out so mm. that would be my main thing yeah. i like i like that you said that yeah you said that earlier everyone is unfinished yeah <laughs> we're all growing hopefully in sustainable ways that encourage human flourishing yeah. <laughs> there you go <laughs> Cheers.